there are so many things around this building, so many things that we have to take care of, and it's a lot to take care of. And Bruce and Jason have been such a help lately. And I'm just like, if you want to help with anything, Michelle is over there. Look, Michelle's like, you have an empty bulletin board. Can I work on the bulletin? I'm like, yes, thank you. And so we're just, um, Jason. Oh, wait, is that Jason? That's Jason. I was just thanking everybody for all your hard work around here lately. You've been such a blessing. Thank you so much. Like, let's let's say thank you for taking care of us, Jason. Um, I'm starting with an interesting word. My friend Amanda got me hooked on the Merriam-Webster word of the day. So if you go to merriam-webster.com or whatever, and you say, sign me up for the word of the day, every day they send you a new word. And I think I've heard of one out of every three or four. I'm always like, I have never heard that word before. But I love words, love interesting words. And there's this word in German called schadenfreude. Can you put it up for us, please, Corky? Schadenfreude. He's looking for it. Anyways, well, we can live without it. The word schadenfreude is writ is a German word, and I, it's become popular to social scientists these days. And what's cool about the German language, supposedly, is they're just really efficient at just taking two separate words and putting them together and making them one word. So schadenfreude is harm and joy. It's what it is. It's harm joy. So we create that word harm joy. What is it? It's the experience of pleasure, joy, or self-satisfaction that comes from learning of or witnessing the troubles, failures, or humiliation of another. Have you ever felt some schadenfreude? Let me give you an example. I'll be driving down the road, driving along, I don't know, Highland or 90th, and I just hate it when those big trucks come up behind me and start tailing me. And they're like, get out of the way, get out of the way. And I'm like, I am minding my own business, driving safely. Stop bullying me, truck. And then the trucks start weaving in and out and reckless driving. And then you see them zoom way off and you're just like, Arr! I'm afraid I can be prone to road rage. <laughs> but the best feeling ever is when you get over that hill, you know, you go to the bottom of 90th and you get to the top of 90th and there's that truck and it's pulled over with flashing lights. And you're like, yes, I feel vindicated. That is schadenfreude. <laughs> I'm like, you deserve it, you big bully, eat my dust. And off I go. It's terrible, right? It's terrible. <laughs> remember Inigo Montoya from Princess Bride? I know it's kind of old, but if you remember Princess Bride, raise your hand. Okay, good. There's enough of us in here. There's this guy, Inigo Montoya, and he's just like, he spent his entire life in the pursuit of revenge to this villain. And he meets this villain and he's like, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father, prepare to die. It's like, <laughs> it was his whole purpose of his life was to avenge his father's death, to get this guy vindication. 
I hate to say it, but there are many times when that smug self-satisfaction seems to be my gut response when people who bother me, people who oppose me, people who have hurt me, people I don't like, when they experience trouble or failure or humiliation, I don't always have a godly response. It's often schadenfreude. We are going to talk today about David at this pivotal part in this transition time of his life when Saul dies. And David, in my opinion, has every right to be like, it's about time. But we're going to read today about what happens. I've been wrestling a lot with this passage, with David's response. I've felt kind of the pain that that, uh, Leslie mentioned earlier, Crystal mentioned later, just the um, weight of the air of this season, the weight that people are experiencing, some of the things that, that have been happening. And I'm like, oh, I don't know how to teach this passage. I don't know how to preach this this Sunday. But I haven't felt like I have permission to pass over it. <laughs> so think about it this way. When Jesus preached, when Jesus taught in synagogues, the custom with rabbis is that when they read scripture, they stood and they read from the scrolls, they read from the prophets, they read from the, um, the Torah. And then they would sit down After they read from the Torah, they would sit down and then they would comment on it. And it was a visual signal to the listeners, like I'm reading the word of God, I'm reading the word of the prophets, and now I'm sitting down and commenting on it and trying to have us remember it and meditate on it and think about it in a way throughout the week. That's how I feel today. I'm like, I'm going to share some scriptures and stories from the Bible And then I'm going to comment on them and I'm going to be like, I don't know what to think about these passages, but I think they're important. So if you are just thinking about them tomorrow or the next day, that's good enough. It's like we're learning, we're meditating, we're wrestling with scripture and responses. So would you all pray with me? Corky, could we put the scripture or the prayer up? If you'd like to, you can pray with me out loud. Holy Spirit, our teacher, as we continue worship and explore your word today, would you awaken our hearts, expand our thinking, and shape who we are today and what we do tomorrow. In the name of Jesus, amen. So we're right at the end of the book of 1 Samuel, and we're getting ready to go into the book of 2 Samuel. We're getting out of the wilderness years. Throughout those wilderness years, we have the story of David and Abigail and Nabal, which I love telling that story last week. I was like, Lord, why can't every week be like that? (laughs) And this week I have to wrestle through this passage. But twice in the wilderness, David had the opportunity to kill Saul, but he didn't do it. He didn't touch Saul. And by this time, at the end of the book of 1 Samuel, King Saul is so tormented by fear of the Philistines and just fear of his own land, everything happening, that he's actually resorted to going to see the witch of Endor. She's not a Star Wars character. 
for all of you Star Wars people. There was a witch of Endor before Star Wars. <laughs> and Saul goes to visit her and she only confirms his fears that things are not looking good for him. So he's in trouble, he's tormented. The very, very last chapter of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 31, David and Saul and all, or Saul, excuse me, Saul and all his sons are going out to war with the Philistines. And as they go out to war with the Philistines, the Philistines overtake Saul. First, they kill all his sons, including Jonathan, David's friend, Jonathan. Next, the archers shoot an arrow through David, or Saul, excuse me. They shoot an arrow through him, and he is wounded so badly that he can't move. Saul fears torture and humiliation at the hands of the Philistines because it's bloody, I promise. If you read for Samuel, it's just a mess. The horrible things they all do to each other. So, the, so Saul asks his armor bearer, he's like, please, don't let me fall into the hands of the Philistines. Please kill me. And the armor bearer is like, I can't do that. I can't touch you. I'm supposed to protect you. And so Saul, what does he do? He falls on his sword and takes his own life. The armor bearer is in distress because his job is to take care of him. And so he, the armor bearer just um, kills himself as well. So now we have two armor bearers. We have an armor bearer and we have Saul who are killed. There's disappointment pure wonder. It's sad. It's violent. I'm like, why are the Philistines and the Israelites, can they just put down their arms? Why did Saul not change his ways? What did he want? What was he waiting for? A young Amalekite, a person of a different tribe, he witnesses Saul's demise. He assumes David is going to be filled with joy because Saul has been harmed, schadenfreude. <laughs> He's like, yes, David is going to be happy when I tell him Saul is dead. Seems reasonable, right? This should be what David wants, the end of Saul. Then David can get on with his life and the task of ruling Israel, being king without Saul. The Amalekite is so excited to tell David that King Saul and his sons are dead that out of his own self-interest, he decides to lie and say, verse 9, 2 Samuel verse 9, Corky, he says, Saul begged me, come over here and put me out of my misery, for I'm in terrible pain and want to die. So he says, the Amalekite says, I killed him, for I knew he couldn't live. Then I took his crown and his armband, and I have brought them here to you, my Lord. Look, David, look what I did. I killed Saul for you. Here's his royal crown. Here's his armband. This is what you've been waiting for, right? Oh, my goodness, that poor Amalekite. <laughs> he didn't understand that David wasn't fueled by revenge. David didn't actually have bitterness in his heart ready to pounce on Saul. Saul did not want, or David did not want Saul and Jonathan dead. That's not what he was waiting for. It wasn't the focus of his hope. 
Instead, David and his men, they tear their clothes. They do not eat anything and they weep. They mourn for Saul and Jonathan, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because Saul and his sons had fallen by the sword. After David has been weeping for a while, he goes to the Amalekite and he's like, why were you not afraid to kill the Lord's anointed one? What were you thinking? God anointed King Saul. And David has the Amalekite killed for killing Saul. Ugh, it's a mess. Then David writes a song. It's not a victory song. It's not a schadenfreude song. It's a song of humility and lament. It's in 2 Samuel 1, verse 1. Maybe we can go to 2 Samuel 1. Thank you. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son, Jonathan. And he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar. Imagine singing this song. A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised. The shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very close to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. Three times we hear the refrain. How the mighty have fallen. Without delay, when David gets this news, without even thinking twice, it seems like he weeps. He weeps because Saul and Jonathan have died, because God created and anointed Saul, because Saul and Jonathan had been significant to him, because the bloodshed affects the mountains, because the fall of the mighty affects all of Israel, sons and daughters alike. It's like he doesn't even have to think twice about it. He doesn't take a moment to feel vindicated, to feel relief. He immediately starts mourning how the mighty have fallen. It's been a rough week in her news cycle. Pretty much every Sunday I stand up here and preach, I could say, it's been a rough news cycle. Couldn't I? Couldn't we? And there's this tension of rejoicing in the Lord, focusing on his goodness and his kindness and everything he does, and then dealing 
with the grief and the challenges that we are facing. I went to the walk, the Hope Walk at Riverton, because I've done that before at Jordan High School. And I'm walking from Riverton High School all the way to the Riverton Memorial, and I am doing everything I can not to just cry. I'm like, why are our high school students dealing with suicide on the week that they're trying to talk about hope? And at, here at Jordan High School this week, we, we had an accident. Um, our state has violence all the time, terrible things. Um, just this month in California, there have been six mass shootings, four mass shootings just this week. We are so used to hearing about it. Did you even know that number? The brutal killing of Tyree Nichols. Oh, this is the stuff we can grieve for real. How the mighty have fallen. Sometimes we look at the Bible so distanced and I'm like, oh, it's so brutal. How can that be in the Bible? How can that be there? And you know why it's so brutal and real? Because it's the reality of today. We are just as brutal. We are just as bad with one another and ourselves. So I understand that kind of grieving. And we need to make place for lament. But David and Saul, this is part that I struggle with. Saul was terrible. <laughs> Have you ever been to a funeral where the person who died was not a great person and everyone there is saying all these wonderful things about them and that's all they focus on? And you leave the funeral feeling like, what happened? That was a farce. That's not real grief. I'm like, is that's what, I was like, what's going on here, David? This is what I've been upset about this week. I'm like, how do I talk about that? What is this, Lord? I don't get it. This is where I get real humble and be like, wow. I don't understand David's lament. Was it because he could see a bigger picture? Was it because the 10 plus years in the wilderness with um, Saul's psychotic rule were imprinted on everyone's memories? Is it because everyone in Judah and Israel knew Saul is bad and terrible and we're all bitter and angry? I don't know. Maybe all they talked about after that, maybe David, Maybe David, good shepherd that he is, maybe he knows that, they, that his people need song and rhythm to root them in humility instead of watering their bitter roots. Let me say that again. This is my best guess. Maybe it's because David knew people needed song and rhythm to root them in humility instead of watering bitter roots. I don't think David is in denial. I think he's looking death 
in the face squarely. That's why he's asking everybody to sing this song. But he's also looking for beauty in Saul's life. He's remembering that Saul was created by God. In that song, he compares Saul to a gazelle. He praises his warrior strength. He speaks about him with love and admiration. It's as if David knew that his real enemy wasn't Saul. Saul wasn't David's real enemy. The real enemy is fear, insecurity, pride, bitterness, our own selves, not bringing our grief and pain and reality of life to the Lord. Our real enemy is not inquiring of the Lord, but looking to our own strength. David constantly denied the temptation, an easy path to kill Saul. He kept his heart free from bitterness and insisted on humility. That was not what I did when I passed that big truck. <laughs> pulled over on the side. I wasn't being humble when I rejoiced in their ticket <laughs> and humiliation. My own pride. It's a simple, silly example, but there are way worse examples in my heart. David displayed the love the apostle Peter wrote about in 1 Peter 4.8. 1 Peter 4, 8 says, above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. I think David's such a good shepherd. He's not just protecting himself from bitterness, but he fervently loves his community, and he's re refocusing them on processing their grief collectively. David sang this lament, but he said it should be taught to everyone in Judah. He knew that loss is never private. As we were walking from Riverton High School to the monument, Crystal and I were asking all the why questions. And she said, well, at least one thing I know is that when I was in high school, if someone died by suicide, no one talked about it. We were all grieving, but we didn't talk about it. She said, at least we're out here together and we're acknowledging it and we're talking about it. I was like, that's right. Eugene Peterson says this about lament. He says, it's never private, it's social and political. Lament shapes culture. The way we deal with loss enters into the atmosphere and makes us a people capable of nobility and beauty or not. Practicing the Christian life has to do, along with much else, with learning this lamentation and learning it well. Teach this lament. Teach this way of dealing with Saul's enmity and Jonathan's love. Teach one another how to take seriously these great cadences of pain, some coming from hate, some coming from love. 
so that we're not diminished, but are deepened by them. Find God in them and beauty. Teach this way of dealing with Saul's enmity and Jonathan's love. I confess that I don't know how to do this. I don't know. Sometimes the people we need in our lives or the people we have loved are not good people and they hurt us. I'm old enough now to have witnessed many people grieve and it's not just death, it's divorce, it's rejection. I think the worst kind of grief is the kind when we have to grieve bad people, the bad people we love or the Maybe they're good people, they're, but they're behaving badly. <laughs> That's the hardest one to grieve. There's no way around grief. You have to journey through it. I've learned this from Grief Share class. That's a class I would recommend to you if you need to journey through grief. But I've watched people grieve poorly, and I've watched people grieve well. When it comes to grieving bad people, <laughs> I wish I had the ABCs of a good grief process for grieving a terrible person, <laughs> but I can't. <laughs> what I can tell you, though, is what I've seen in David and what I've witnessed in the people who are not diminished by grief, but deepened by it. And the main difference is hope. How beautiful that the Lord, that the Holy Spirit would speak to us about this in our worship today, right? Before we even get here, hope. It's something greater than revenge or vindication, greater than hope even in reconciliation with people we love. It's hope in God himself. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 speaks about how we don't grieve like the rest of humanity because we have hope in a resurrected God, a resurrected Jesus. We actually have something real to put our hope in, and it's the resurrected Christ. I think David was waiting for something greater than the demise of his enemy, something greater than a crown and an armband, something greater than all the promises God had given him. David put his hope in God himself, in God's goodness and faithfulness toward him, despite any circumstance. And I think this for good reason, because David wrote a lot of songs about it. Psalm 63. Psalm 63 says, Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you. In this parched and weary land where there is no water, I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You are worthy of it all. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. 
The unfailing love of God is better than the life. God himself satisfies David. Psalm 142. Let me get a drink. It says, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge. You are my portion in the land of the living. God himself was David's portion, not victory over Saul, not a throne, not a crown, not followers who at one point praise him and the next point want to kill him. God himself was David's portion and his hope, the praise and the rejection of man. I'm going to read from Psalm 130. It's a song of ascent. David did not write this song. It's a song that all the Israelites would sing when they would go to the temple three times a year. When everyone would get together, they would all sing this song. Journeying. It's a song about humility. Humility. I think I say humility every single time I preach about David. Because I think it was the signature on his life. Psalm 130 takes us from an awareness of our own sin. We're singing along. We did that today with our songs. We sang about an awareness of our own sin and brokenness. But we also sing about an assurance of forgiveness and God's redemption. And then finally, we sing about hope. There's hope. We've got this God on this throne who's holy, 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 who was and is and is to come. And he's there and we have hope in him. Psalm 130, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, people of God, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. I love it. It takes us from the violence and the sin and the messed up people that we are to God's forgiveness, to hope. This is what we have in Christ. I've been thinking about this Psalm all this week. I shared it in staff meeting. We started talking about it, and I told them that um, I realized when I was meditating on this psalm that I'm really good at waiting on the Lord for healing. I'm really good at waiting on the Lord for reconciliation. I'm really good at waiting on the Lord for provision. I mean, I'm not always good at these things, but for the most part, <laughs> I've learned how to wait on the Lord for the things that I need. And what struck me is, am I any good at just waiting on the Lord to wait on the Lord? What if what the Lord wants to do in, in me is greater than 
healing or reconciliation or provision or a new job or whatever it is. I'm not saying any of those things are bad and that we shouldn't wait on the Lord for those things. But I think his waiting on the Lord is what sustained him through all those crazy wilderness years. Am I actually waiting on Jesus? What Jesus wants to do in me and for me. The other thing we talked about is this vivid image and the repetition of, I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. And I realized that I often pray these desperate prayers, let the morning come, (laughs) let the morning come. I spend a lot of time praying, bring the morning when I could be praying, bless the morning, right? Watchmen, people who put their trust in the Lord are confident that the sun is going to rise. I mean, all hell can break loose and the sun always rises. As surely as the sun rises, the Lord is here with us. Am I willing to wait for the Lord and the morning sun? Eugene Peterson says this about the David story. He says, we're at the midpoint in the David story. David's lament over Saul and Jonathan functions as a pivot. David's lament keeps everything in the first half of the story working in the second half. Lament is a bridge from life to death to life. A failure to lament is a failure to connect. Lament, making the most of our loss without getting bogged down in it, is a primary way of staying in the story. God is telling the story, remember. I'm so thankful that I went to that hope walk yesterday. I'm like, I'm staying in this story because my high school kid friends, Grace, when my kids had to do similar things at Jordan High School, I'm like, I'm there. I'm staying in this story. We're staying in this story. We're going on this walk and trusting that God is bringing us into a greater story trusting that greater things are yet to come, trusting that as sure as the sun rises, Jesus is there for us. Jesus is there. He's like the sunrise saying, good morning. I'm here. I'm here. I'd like to finish. Um, I'm going to have Kathy just play. the piano and just play something in the background. And I don't have Psalm 130 in song. So I would like us to just stand and read Psalm 130. And you can go home and sing it, put it to your own melody. But we'll have music reminding us that this is a song. But could you all stand and we'll read Psalm 130 together? We're going to close with this. 
So if you feel down, if you're, if you're battling depression, if you're, if you're processing grief, if you're walking through a wilderness, if you feel like someone like Saul is after you, if you feel like um, your heart is heavy, then you can sing this song on your way up into the presence of the Lord. So let's read together. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord for what the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for coming to the house of the Lord. It encourages me when you are here, when we're together, when we worship, when we remember. Um, God bless you this week. If you would like prayer, you can come over here to the prayer table. You can chat with me. You can talk to one another. We can pray for one another. But God bless you this week. Go in the hope of the Lord. Amen.